Hey everyone, welcome to this inaugural episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm Carl Thomas, your host for the series, where every week we'll explore the best and the worst bosses, employees, relationships, leadership, management styles, what works, what doesn't, and why, and everything in between. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Ron Benzian, the absolute best boss I ever had. We'll elaborate on that in a few minutes. He's currently CEO of the Live Nation Club Division, which includes the House of Blues, and formerly the CEO of Tickets Now, Tickets.com, and the chairman of the Universal Studios Theme Park Group. Hey, Ron, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here. Hey, Carl, thanks for having me. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's good to be back uh, talking to you again and uh, excited about uh, what, uh, what we're going to talk about today. Well, let's get right to it. Uh, in your career, you've managed thousands of employees in several very large organizations. So let's start with a, with a quick look back. Give us a bit of perspective on the past 25 years. Yeah, look, I, I'm kind of a serial CEO, um, and I think everybody asked me how you know how do you go from you know theme parks to restaurants to technology to ticketing, um, and I think when it's all said and done, my my base was um, was uh, something many people don't get an opportunity to do. When I worked at Universal Studios, we built cities. Um, uh, and which still are, are around today and will continue to be around way into my grandchildren's lifetimes. Um, and in building a small city, and we built three of them uh, in, in Hollywood and in Florida and in Osaka, you do everything. There's, there's no thing, business thing, uh, creative thing, marketing thing that you don't do um, in this type of environment. So couple that really broad-based, huge platform uh, and, and, the, and, and, and having incredible mentors uh, to, to learn from, Lou Wasserman, Sid Scheinberg, Jay Stein, who gave me the opportunity to fail as well as succeed. Um, and essentially doing every job in that business uh, from, from sweeping floors where I first started to, to running the division with 14,000 people and a billion dollars in revenue and $4 billion of projects underway. You, you kind of are ready for anything. So, so moving from that huge platform, um, I went to a company called uh, um, Gameworks. And um, that was just the opposite, where at Universal, I could always go to you know, Daddy Warbucks for a check uh, to bail us out or to, to get some work done, we were on the brink of bankruptcy. Um, and so the ability to work uh, entrepreneurially without, without a net um, and, and turn a company around was, was unique to me. And, and frankly, I didn't know if I could do it because I'd always been in such a big company with all this big infrastructure. And you walk into this small company, doesn't have a dime left in the bank, uh, with people who are looking to be, you know, what are we going to do now kind of looks. Um, uh, uh, it, was a, it was a great learning experience. And, and more importantly, it kind of validated, I'm pretty good at this. Um, and, and I can be entrepreneurial. I don't need a big, big safety net. Um, and then I moved on to a ticketing company, Tickets.com. 
And I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't know anything about technology, but, but as I've gone through all of my career and, and culminating where I am today, in fact, um, I realize that it's really about monetizing traffic when it's all said and done. At the theme parks, uh, we built attractions, we built uh, theme parks, uh, and we invited people in there and we created products to sell them when they were there. Um, we created products to get them there um, and we monetized them. At GameWorks, uh, we had a, a different product base, but it's the same. Instead of uh, you know, the shark ride, uh, we had games and we created uh, reasons for people to come. We branded the restaurant so people would come just as a restaurant experience. And then at Tickets.com, it was pretty much the same thing. What, what can we do? Well, let's figure out how to get traffic into our, into our, 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 our sites uh, and then create more products, which you were a part of, in order to sell our clients uh, additional, additional products and to sell our, our customers additional products. We were the first one to put secondary tickets uh, on, on, a, on a primary ticket website. So um, it, it, to me, that's kind of how my career has evolved. Um, and it's, it's, you know, knock on wood, I've, I think I've, uh, I think I've been pretty successful. And, and you've been really fortunate and I was super fortunate to be a part of a couple of those episodes. Um, so I'm going to give a little bit, uh, of an imprimatur about why you were the best boss I ever had. Um, and you know, when one is called the best boss ever, it can be a bit of a bit intimidating. I mean, what boss doesn't want to be that? But you, but you were that, and, and you were that for me twice. You hired me twice, once at Universal Studios in that mega large platform. I came in as one of your direct reports and managed all of the corporate partnership, then called sponsorship, across all of the theme park assets. And it was a massively large sandbox to play in. And I loved every minute of it. A few years later, you took the CEO role at tickets.com, reached out again, and I came in as your chief rev and chief marketing officer there. And that was a really good run because we were in a very strict turnaround environment, I think. And, and we believed that we could turn it around and your leadership and guidance um, you know, sort of helped us and encouraged us every step of the way. You'd mentioned one thing about Sid or Jay or Lou giving you room to fail, which I think is so critical in, in a leadership role. Uh, you can't manage through fear and intimidation and expect your direct reports to, to take any risk at all. Risk always involves the possibility of failure, and I think that's such a crucial part uh, of the management ethos, if you will. A couple of other things, two-way trust and two-way truth. I had it with you, I felt you had it with me, and I watched my frontline colleagues uh, feel exactly the same way. You were always approachable, you gave us plenty of space to you know, give us ideas, you asked us questions, you'd actually walk in our office and unannounced, um, sit down in a chair, or in one instance I recall, lay down on the couch, and we spent 45 minutes in a, in a very intensive but really natural Q&A. And you always listened with, uh, with the wicked sense of humor. So those are kind of the top lines for me. 
in terms of style, the ethos and, and sort of strategy and, and, and such. So let's, let's hear a little bit about your high level management and leadership style, and then we can dig right into your current role because it's quite a challenging one leading the world's largest cool club portfolio. Yeah, look, I, I mean, what's my management style? I think he kind of touched on it. I, I always tell people I manage by wandering the halls. Um, you know, no business is, is too big for, for not being able to have, you know, one-on-one -on -one communication, being able to walk into someone's office unannounced and sit down and talk about whatever the, the, the issues are that we're facing and, and, and have that kind of dialogue. So, you know, I, it's, it's easy to say, but, but honesty is, it, for me, it's so much easier to keep track of. Um, and so I, I demanded of myself, um, and I demanded of, of, um, of, of the people I work with. And I think that, it, it, you know, honesty becomes integrity, right? And so, you know, kind of say what you do and do what you say, uh, is kind of another thing that I live by. And, 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 and I've always told people, I get away with a lot because people believe me and, and I've earned that. I, I don't lie. Um, I don't mislead. I don't bluff a lot, um, and um, it 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 helps in a negotiation. It helps in a discussion. Um, and you know, when I say this, we're going, we're not going to do this, or we are going to do this in a in a in you know, maybe a negotiation with a partner or whoever it may be. People believe me because it's the truth. Um, so that helps a lot. It, it helps me, um, and it helps my partners as well. I think the other thing that I, I pride myself on um, is being able to keep a, a team focused, no matter how big that team is. Um, I think that all too often, especially at, at Tickets.com, we had you know, 11 different products and you know, this, you know, people that were all over the, the country, uh, renegades that didn't want to be acquired but realized they already were. Um, it was a mess. Uh, so to be able to sit with you and, and the other people we had uh, at the time uh, and say, you know, this is what we need to do, right? Not that, because that's not important right now. Let's get the big stuff done and let's focus on that. And, and all too often, in, in, especially with working with fellow entrepreneurs, they want to go off on the next pretty thing and, or, or you know, let's, let's, let's do a, a side job. It, it, to do something well takes as much time as a, in a small, business as it does in a big idea or a big, small idea and a big idea. And I'm capable of focusing um, like a laser. What's important? What do we have to get done? And don't let anything else get in the way. And helping the team uh, filter that when outside um, uh, influences are, are, are causing them to look the other way, I, I'll step between them and that influence. Uh, and ensure that they are allowed to do what they need to do, and I'll deal with whatever that may be. Um, it's it's those two things um, I think have guided me, and 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 I I feel are, are are what lets me do what I do. Well, I was the the personal beneficiary uh, and a professional beneficiary of exactly that. There are a couple of key moments where I can recall that. The, the focus not necessarily was lost, but those distracting or outside or other influences were 
were threatening or continuing to sort of loom and you did exactly what you just said. You inserted yourself between the priority of focus and whatever the distraction might be. And, and I know that was really, really well appreciated by me because it, it just, you know, you, you know that your boss has your back and that's so critical. Yeah, I don't, you know, I would not say it's, it, it, you know, I don't like that term has your back because I, I, we, we all had each other's back. I think what, what I'm so committed um, to that focus that it's not, it, it really has no offense, had nothing to do with you per se. It's, I need you, we need to be doing this and, and whatever that is, is not important. And I don't want you even worrying about it. So it, I, I appreciate that, you know, it's more collegial to say has your back, but it was really more selfish. Focus, I need you to do this. I'll take care of the noise. Well said. Well, listen, with that sort of overview, let's dive into your, your current role, the current environment, uh, especially given uh, the impact of a variety of things over the past four or five months. I'm keen to hear um, the, the reasons why you joined House of Blues and then, which, which it was then called, and is now aggressively morphed under your leadership into the, into the world's largest club portfolio. Help us understand the sort of sequencing and steps that you went through from a practical asset aggregation perspective, and then all the way back to uh, leading in a very challenging environment. Yeah. So, so starting off, why, why this, this business, you know, this is, this is the uh, theme park without, with, based on music, right? The GameWorks was a theme park based on uh, games. Um, and so I, I, I'm just going back to the, you know, the original point I made, and it's an easy business for me. It's, it's uh, the, the product is music, and my job is to um, get people in the door, treat them really well, have them spend as much money as possible, uh, make sure that the band and fan experience is, is perfect so they'll want to come back again. Um, that's business 101. Um, and so it was easy for me, um, House of Blues with restaurants, I get it, private clubs, I get it, with special events, I get it. Um, you know, so that was an easy segue. It was a small platform, about 30 venues, um, over half of them losing, losing money, and, and I'm talking millions of dollars. Um, the original task was to look at the portfolio and, and pick winners and losers and divest the losers. And as we put together this club and theater team, we, you know, I, there were some obvious things that, 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 that uh, were causing the, the degradation of the, of, of the profits. And once we started to fix those things and, and realize, what is it, we can make money in this business, um, we were able to look forward and, and, and decide, hey, you know, the bigger our portfolio, the bigger footprint we have, the more, I wouldn't call it leverage over the acts, but the more we have to offer um, artists. Uh, because we pay more than retail, we pay more than anybody else. So the fact that we have now 87 venues, um, doesn't give us the discount, the group discount. We wind up paying more, but we're so good at monetizing the, the, that, that more. We, we can pay back the incentive or extra money that we pay um, through volume. 
And so that's, that's really what we've done. And so now coming full circle, we've, we've created a, you know, it's almost a billion dollar business um, from what was about 175, uh, 175 million. Um, and we're in a place now where we're the largest portfolio of, of, of clubs in the world. Uh, that doesn't help when the entire world is shut down. So it's a very, very challenging environment right now to, um, to look at, you know, what do we do now, right now, um, and, and how are we going to come out of this? Um, so the right now entailed, you know, to, to a certain degree, we kept our, a lot of our employees on, even part-timers on for, for three months and paid. Um, we've unfortunately over the last couple of months have had to furlough um, uh, quite a few full-time people because we're still closed and there's really no light at the end of the tunnel. Um, the recent resurgence of outbreaks in uh, markets like Florida and Texas and Arizona, which were the markets that we thought we could open up first, has set us back tremendously. So uh, it's very challenging. So as we, uh, we look forward, what do, what do we look like coming out of this? Are people going to want to be in a, a room that's closed up uh, uh, and, and, and everybody crowds towards the stage. We have plans that have social distancing. Is that going to be an enjoyable experience? Um, with 40 million people out of work, does anybody really want to spend $40 on a ticket for, for a show? Um, so all of those things are going to inform how we come back and it'll be very phased. Uh, Right now, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I don't, you know, we're, we're here in, the, you know, the middle of July, and I don't see a show coming on board till maybe late August. And if these outbreaks continue, it'll be even, even later than that. So it's been difficult. We've had to renegotiate with our real estate um, uh, 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 landlords. Uh, we've, you know, rene renegotiated with all of our artists. Uh, and going forward, you know, we see this a little bit as an opportunity. We, uh, it's an opportunity to reset the artist relationship with the promoter. Um, it's a opportunity to reset real estate as we go forward. What is gonna be the world of real estate? There are, you know, we just, uh, uh, the container store is closing down. The Brooks Brothers just closed down. Wh what are these empty shells? Uh, uh, where, where, who's gonna rent them again? Who's gonna lease them? We think that we're uniquely qualified to do that, but the, the, the economics must change as well. So we see both opportunity and kind of a, this fear going forward um, with, with what's going on with, with the COVID. No, that, that's a lot of moving parts. And it, you know, you've got your finger on the pulse of all of those, all of those dials, which is, which is <laughs> admirable to say the least. Let's talk just quickly about hiring the right candidate pools, assuming you get back. I mean, you talked earlier on about uh, in full flower, you're producing in addition, you know, above 16,000 live shows a year. That's a lot of body count um, from a management perspective and a lot of employees. What's your approach to, to sort of finding the right candidates in a, in a large pool, obviously today with so many folks out of work, um, when everybody puts a hiring sign up, you're going to get deluged with applicants. Yeah. Um, you know, look, we, we are very, well, I'm very careful about um, 
who we hire, and that's stating the obvious. But it's funny, the number one gating issue for me is culture. Is this person gonna fit into the environment, the culture, that the vibe that we've created in our business, whether it be a general manager at a, at, at a club or a lawyer um, at our home office. And, and it's, it, it, if, if I can't get past that gate, no matter how brilliant they are, they're just not gonna, they're not gonna cut it in, in our group. So, so it's odd that, you know, I, I don't know if that's different than other people, but to me, that's the, the number one gate. Um, look, you're, if you bet 50-50 hiring executives, you're, you're in the hall of fame of hiring. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's always tough. Um, I look for people who are alert, who have a point of view in the interview. Um, I try to dig into, uh, you know, a little bit more in depth when they say, well, we did this, we did, well, how did you do it? What did you specifically do? When did you do it? Who did you do it with? Um, to really determine, you know, is there any there there? Because it's, it's really easy to gloss over some of this stuff. I wouldn't say I'm a tough interview, um, but I don't, I don't let somebody just give me the, the superficial answer. Or we try to dig down a couple of, a couple of things. I think in the field, um, I interview every GM and assistant GM in our buildings. Now, why do I do that? I don't think any other president of a division does those kinds of things. Maybe they do. Um, because they're the leaders. They, you know, I, don't, I know what happens in my office, but I have no idea what happens on Tuesday night uh, at 11 o'clock in our, our Fillmore in uh, Philadelphia. I have no idea. And so unless we hire the right people there, uh, that's, that to me is, is even the, is even the, the tougher decision uh, and the more critical decision and the more dangerous decision. Those people run our business. And so we take an awful lot of time um, uh, in training, vetting, uh, uh, background checks, uh, and then staying close to our, our people um, as, they, as they get involved with the company and they get up to speed. Um, there's a lot of oversight to ensure that we've got the right person on the ground where we actually make money. Right. And I mean, the culture bit is hugely important. I agree completely with you. And then, you know, hiring the key people, I mean, always important. And I remember when Peter Uberoth was running the LA Olympic Committee way back when, and there was this big hubbub about the three to 5,000 volunteers he was going to have to, you know, attract or persuade to come help on the execution of the games. And I remember distinctly, he just, it was a two sentence when he says, hey, folks, it's not the 3,000 volunteers. It's the 30 people I hire to manage this very large enterprise. The, if I do that right, the volunteers will, will take care of themselves, which obviously, looking into the history crystal ball, he, he delivered on that in spades. Hey, listen, Ron, we've got a couple of minutes left. I just want to get some fun facts in here. So this is kind of a quick bullet QA for you. You ready? Yeah. All right. Wine or whiskey? Both. Huh. Uh, can, can I, scotch, scotch and wine. Yeah. Scotch and wine. On the wine side, cab or pinot? Oh, California cab all day. Well, there you go. Um, best vacation spot for you, beach or mountains? 
totally the beach. Go figure. Uh, golf or fly fishing? Yeah, fly fishing. So that guy goes away from my beach beach vacation, but but I uh, I try to get away two or three times a year and uh, and get get a, get alone on a river somewhere, and um, it's very cathartic and and something I I really really enjoy. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I love it. I love it as well. Um, so the last bit here, uh, delving into your, your sort of music history and background, likes and dislikes, topic is female vocalists. So first one is Chrissy Hind and the Pretenders or Natalie Merchant and 10,000 Maniacs? Yeah, so, so, so I'm, I, I think I'm going to go with 10,000 Maniacs, although... Uh, I did see Chrissy Hines at the Hollywood Bowl, I think it was just last year, and she sure can still sing. So it was a, it's a tough choice, but I'm going 10,000 Maniacs. Yeah, great pipes on both, for sure. Yeah. Ron, you've been really gracious with your time. I so appreciate it. I think the audience is going to love your commentary. Um, I know I did. Thanks again, and best of luck. And, and if ever, just so the audience knows, if I ever got a chance to work for Ron Benzian again in a nanosecond. Thank you, Carl. I really appreciate the time and, and it's uh, good spending time and reminiscing with you. Thanks, Dan.